Hey everyone, and welcome to episode nine of Authors on a Podcast Talking Books. I'm your host, David Walters. Today, I'm delighted to have thriller writer CJ Tudor on the podcast. She's the author of The Chalk Man, which was released in 2018. Uh, the Hiding Place, also known as The Taking of Any Thorn Outside of the U.S., which released was released in 2019. And the upcoming novel, The Other People, which hit shelves on January 28th in the U.S. and January 23rd beyond. Her debut novel, The Chalk Man, won the International Thriller Writers Award for Best First Novel, the Strain Magazine Critics Award for Best Debut Novel, and the Barry Award for Best First Novel. She is also a Sunday Times bestselling author and has earned the moniker Britain's Female Stephen King, who not only gave the Chalk Man high praise, but gave her a pretty sweet shout out on Twitter. Basically, if you like what King writes, more than likely you'll enjoy anything Tudor puts out. CJ was born in Salisbury, England and grew up in Nottingham, where she still lives with her husband and young daughter. And she also calls herself disturbingly cheery. But without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, CJ Tudor. Hello, hiya. Hey, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I, I like the intro. Yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> Disturbingly cheery is true. Because someone said that about me. They said, basically, you write all these dark, creepy stuff, but you're so cheery, it's kind of disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, ever since I've been following you on Twitter, I mean, I don't think I've seen, like, one uh you know sad or disturbing <laughs> tweet from you but yeah then you read your books and you're like who is this person i know yes i, I have a dark side <laughs> i think a weird thing is i often say about crime and thriller writers um because you know i meet quite a lot of them at various events and um, without fail they are just the nicest most supportive group of people um and i i just have this theory that you know we get all the dark stuff out on the page and it's the romance writers that you've got to watch out for. Ah, you know, so I was just talking to, to Evan Winter on my last episode about romance writers, and he was kind of talking about how they're sort of the backbone, at least when indie publishing comes in. But yeah, uh, but yeah, I, I haven't heard about them being the ones you have to watch out for. That's uh, that's good to know. <laughs> is, you know, I think you know they, they can't be you know that nice and lovely all the time. So you know they probably. In their spare time, they're probably, I don't know, killing puppies or something. <laughs> Not really. I'm just joking. Right, right. No no puppies are harmed no, within the recording no, of this no podcast. <laughs> so you're doing all right today? I know we're about on, a, on about a six-hour time difference, so you've, you've had a little bit more of the day than I have. Um, yeah. No, I'm good. I've, I've had my tea. I've had my coffee. I've done some writing. I've walked the dog. Um, so yeah, so it's all good. That's better standard Saturday, really. There you go. There you go. How, how's the weather over there? It's great. It's raining. <laughs> it's kind of typical UK weather. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we're uh, we're expecting uh, we're, we're getting a what they call a severe weather day today in Alabama. So we're expecting right. potential tornadoes for the next like oh seven my. hours. <laughs> oh so, wow! Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. It's, streams here i think you know <laughs> that's why the uk gets really bemused if they have like a couple of inches of snow or it's a bit windy <laughs> and a bin gets knocked over and then we call that a hurricane oh my goodness yeah we we've been uh, experiencing some some nice little wind gusts here for the last couple of hours since i've been oh, up God. so yeah you know it, it's typical alabama weather i mean we're not in tornado season quite yet but i think it's uh one of those you know, getting you ready for it, I guess, because once oh, the spring yeah. hits, it's like, all right, so, you know, it's either going to be a beautiful day outside or it's going to be really muggy, like 80 <laughs> degrees, and then we've got to, like, watch out for tornadoes. So. <laughs> wow, so it's like it suddenly stops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's like you kind of look outside and you go, you know, it looks really ugly out here. Uh, <laughs> we should probably find a basement to hide in or something yeah. for a while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh great! Well, uh, well. First off, thank you so much for for coming on. I've uh, I've obviously been enjoying your books for a couple of years now, uh, and we've been following each other on Twitter now for a couple of years. But yeah, uh, it's 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 always great when when a new book of yours is announced because uh, I try to get to it asap, uh, which is oh, what I it. yeah, which is what I did with the other people, and we'll we'll get to that uh, a little bit later, but. Just kind of uh, first off, if you don't mind, tell me a little bit about yourself, kind of growing up, school, uh, hobbies that you had growing up. Okay, well, um, I mean, <laughs> I think my biggest hobby growing up was probably reading and making stuff up. That, that Those were kind of the two things I was good at as a child. I think I was an only child, you see, and I think when you're an only child, quite often you do live in this bit of a fantasy world because you haven't got brothers and sisters. So I used to kind of create these 
these big fantasy worlds in my imagination, you know, every day was kind of like this, this new imagined world I was living in. And I think that's, that's what got me into writing, really. Um, and I always loved to read from a really young age. So those were those sort of big things from quite young. You know, I loved reading and I was making up stories from, you know, pretty much as soon as I could write, I think. Um, so, yeah. And then I lived in, I lived in quite a, quite a sort of, well, fair enough, I lived in, a, in a sort of the suburbs um, in the UK. I lived in the south and then we moved to Nottingham. Um, so very much like in my first book, The Chalkman, I had a little gang of friends um, where we were sort of like 10 to 12. We used to do sort of similar things to the kids in that book and take our bikes and go off to the woods and build dens and all that kind of stuff because it was the 80s and we didn't have iPhones or you know more than four TV channels <laughs> so you know, that's what you did your parents waved you goodbye and off you went and you had your little adventures um, and then you came back at tea time so that was kind of you know growing up was was, yeah, was fairly cool really um, and I'm fairly if I'm still in touch with all the the friends that I had back then we still we're still friends now so when I was writing the chalk man it was quite quite handy for research we'd get together and sort of reminisce um, but yeah so it was it's fairly I say uneventful childhood like like a lot of kids really uh, but my big love you know as, as a child was was reading and and you know writing stories um I think I started off reading you know the normal sort of stuff like Enid Blyton and then sort of moved on to Agatha Christie um with lots of ghost stories and various things along the way because I always quite liked the dark creepy stuff too and then kind of about 12 discovered Stephen King which was kind of that was it for me but then this was the 80s. So, you know, horror was was really big in the 80s. You know, Stephen King, Dean Koontz, James Herbert. It was it was kind of a really a huge genre at the time. Um, and that, I think, really sort of informed me going forward. I've always I've always written. But I, I think because I didn't sort of grow up, I, I sort of grew up in the suburbs and perhaps what you'd call a lower sort of middle class family. I never thought that being an author was something that I could do. That seemed like a kind of really far off thing that people that lived in I don't know, big cities like London, who were kind of rich and important, did. I, I sort of had this idea that, you know, you couldn't be a kid from the suburbs and kind of grow up to be an author. So I sort of found jobs, I think. I left school at 16, which is quite unusual, um, but I had a bit, a bit of a rough time in my senior school um, and I wanted to sort of get out of that environment. I sort of sought out jobs where I could write. So I was like, a, I was a trainee reporter for a while on a local newspaper. And then I got into radio, writing radio commercials. And I worked in an advertising agency for a short while. Um, I was a TV presenter for an even shorter while, um, which was for a movie show, which was quite fun because they sort of sent me to places and I got to interview movie stars, which was amazing. And I met some really cool people, but I wasn't a very a very good television presenter I don't think really <laughs> I think I lasted one one series um and then yeah I did various I've done I've done sort of various jobs I ended up working for myself um, quite early on I realized I didn't like working for other people so I used to be a freelance writer um and and also do voiceovers from my my studio at home for radio and tv um and then eventually sort of I ended up not making enough money at that and I loved dogs and I set up a dog walking business <laughs> so when I wrote The Chalk Man, I was running a dog walking business and I had my little girl by that point. Um, and, and yeah, walking dogs sort of for hours every day um, and looking after my little girl and then writing The Chalk Man whenever I could fit it in. So, yeah, I've had a, I've had a varied career. I, I, I usually say to people I've spent most of my life avoiding having a pro proper job. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so okay, I need you to tell me a little bit about uh, your time on Movie Watch because this this part about Tim Robbins and Robert Downey Jr. that you've got in your uh, your little author blurb, I need I need a little bit more detail on those. Oh my goodness, yeah. So basically, Movie Watch was a show. I was I was one of the the co presenters, and they'd send you on these junkets. You know, for you know when a movie comes out, the actors do these junkets. So basically, you know, they they all really hate them because they're stuck in a hotel room. I think you know for days on end. And these reporters and, and people from movie shows and so on and so forth are wheeled in to talk to them. And you have like about six minutes. Um, you have to do your questions and they've kind of heard them all before. So the show I worked for was quite sort of a youth orientated show. So they always used to like to come up with different questions. They, they sort of research things about the actors. So you could ask them really odd questions. I remember one question I had to ask Sigourney Weaver was about her dressing up as an elf and living in a tree. True story, um, which apparently she did. It, but it was it was full of like weird questions like that because the idea was you don't want to ask 
<coughs> excuse me, all the same questions that the other people are asking. Right. Um, so the Tim Robbins one in particular, I had this set of like quite offbeat, silly questions. And they were, they were written by a new researcher, so they were a little bit more edgy than normal. Um, and I sort of went off to this, this junket with all these questions. But it turned out it was that it was the film was Dead Man Walking, which, if you know, you've seen is, is a really heavy, serious film about the death penalty. And it's got Sean Penn in and Susan Sarandon. And it, it's really not sort of right for really lighthearted questions. But I was told very firmly that I always had to ask the questions I was given because, you know, that I wasn't kind of chicken out and ask less, you know, less stupid questions basically right and of course i was in america so there was a time difference so i couldn't query these questions after i'd seen the film so yes yeah, so i had to march <laughs> with this set of really inappropriate questions of this really heavy important serious film um and although you know tim robbins was, was pretty patient um basically the publicists after the questions took me to one side and they, they refused to let me have the, the like the video basically of the interview and they were really really annoyed um, and it was absolutely, it was absolutely mortifying because I love Tim Robbins and I was absolutely mortified. Um, and I think with the benefit of hindsight, I think, you know, now I'm much older, I think, oh God, I would just should have changed the questions and not worried about what the producer said. But yeah, it was absolutely awful. There, there was a question in there that was about Susan Sarandon's breasts. I, I, I actually just, oh, even now I can feel myself going, oh my God, I can't believe I asked that question. So that was awful. Um, but yeah, I also interviewed Robert Downey Jr. I can't remember what the movie was for now, actually. Um, and I can't even remember the context, but I think it's probably fair to say that this was when Mr. Downey Jr. was still partaking of things other than, should we say, perhaps water and soft drinks. Because <laughs> um, he was pretty wired um, when I when I walked in there for this interview. And, and I can't even remember why. I asked, I think, a relatively innocuous question, which involved him saying... For some reason, deciding he was going to take his top off, um, and then inviting me outside for a cigarette. Uh, so it was all—it was all a little bit <laughs> weird, but you know, it's—it's it's all experience, isn't it? So, so yeah, it was—it was fun. And I, yeah, I normally I, I tell my Robert Duke Downey Jr. story to pretty much anybody who asks. I, I tell them if they don't ask. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I was 23, so it was—it was exciting and interesting, um, and. Yeah, kind of weird at the same time. But but yeah, all, all experiences, good experience. Yeah, exactly. And it sounds like you've had, you know, tons of experiences and those lead to fantastic <laughs> stories. So you must just be the life of parties. <laughs> I don't know. I think most of my friends have heard this. They're like, oh, no, God, don't tell the Robert Downey Jr. story again. We've heard it. We've heard it. <laughs> <laughs> you got that one person that comes over that hasn't heard it, you know, and you've got good crowd of people. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Well, I have to say, so you were talking about, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, starting a dog walking business. And all I can think of, have you ever seen the movie Trainwreck with Amy Schumer? Oh, no, I haven't. Okay, so uh, they made a fake movie inside of that movie called The Dog Walker with Daniel Radcliffe. And he's just walking around with like 12 dogs attached to his waist. And that's all that I can imagine because uh, it says right here that you're walking over 20 dogs a week. But I can imagine them all being tethered to you at once. <laughs> Well, I was, but actually with our business, because um, the sort of business I ran was that all the dogs used to get individual walks. So I didn't used to do a lot of group walks. Um, so I used to spend a lot of my time darting around from place to place, picking up dogs and doing their walk and then driving somewhere else to do another walk for another dog. Mm. So it's not as lucrative as doing group walks, but in the area where, where we lived, that was kind of what the owners wanted. They liked their dogs to have their like individual walk. A lot of them weren't good with other dogs, the dogs I walked, so they couldn't really be walked in groups. Um, but it was, it was still a bit chaotic at times. Yeah, it was, it was fun though. I love, I see, I love dogs. I love animals. Um, and you know, I, I enjoyed my business. I enjoyed doing it. I mean, it wasn't so hot when it was chucking it down and you were out for six or seven hours a day in the rain, but you know, the dogs loved you, you know? <laughs> Goodness gracious. So, uh, so you talked a little bit about when you were growing up, uh, obviously you were, kind of influenced to get into writing by, you know, King and Koontz and so forth. Yeah. Um, so were they what truly inspired you to write or did you always think, you know, I, I really enjoy what I read. So maybe I can try my hand at it. Uh, or did you just, you know, just one day go, I want to try to put some words to a page, see what it sounds like and see if I can continue on. I always, I used to, I always used to write, I used to write poems and all sorts of things when I was quite young, sort of seven, eight, nine. Um, 
and then when I went to senior school, um, I, I, I really got interested in, in sort of darker, creepier stories. And I, I think yeah, even at sort of nine or ten, I was I was writing quite creepy stories. I used to, I, I used to get sort of like ghost stories and things from the library, and I read lots of classic kind of ghost stories and and that sort of stuff. Um, and also at my at my my senior school, I I had an English teacher called Mr. Webster, um, and he very very soon sort of started encouraging me and saw that I had a you know an aptitude for for writing stories, and I loved writing stories. Um, and he he lent me sort of books like The Turn of the Screw and The Woman in Black. Um, those sort of classic gothic sort of stories because uh, he knew I liked writing sort of dark creepy stuff and that was even before actually that I'd sort of picked up my first Stephen King book but I think once I, I think the difference by picking up the King book was sort of seeing that translation of horror and and, and thriller and creepy stuff in sort of it's sort of the here and now the sort of the, the present day and in sort of quite ordinary suburban settings um, and, and that sort of really appealed to me. And of course, in, in most of King's books, you know, a lot of King's books, you, you know, you tend to have kids or young or young people as main characters quite often. And again, that, that sort of really, really drew me in. Um, and yeah, and I just sort of started devouring those books. But it is strange. I couldn't really tell you where my interest in dark, creepy stories really, really comes from, because my, my parents are completely normal. My mum won't even read my books. It's <laughs> too scary for her. But I, yeah, I was, I was always really quite interested in those dark, creepy things. I think kids can be quite macabre. I do remember when me and my friends used to go to the woods and build our dens and things. We used to tell each other creepy stories. We used to do the whole thing of trying to scare yourself. Self, and there's always some urban myth, um, you know, about some creepy man in the woods or something. Mm. So I think, you know, kids do do that type of thing. They're quite macabre. They're quite interested in dark things. And then sometimes you just don't lose that as you grow older. Right, right. You know, some of that just could be coming from being a child and having night terrors or thinking a monster's under yeah. your bed or in the closet. And you just yeah. kind of, you get over the fear, but then it's still there. And then you start, you know, playing games where you're trying to find the dead body or something. And you kind of do when we're in the woods. I mean, we would have been thrilled to bits if we'd found a dead body. <laughs> we kind of always wanted to find something horrible in the world. <laughs> right, right. Because, I mean, you know, you go out there, <clears throat> you know, nowadays when you go in the woods, you kind of go into it for the beauty of things. And when you're younger, you go out to find something. You do. Um, and, you know, woods can be, I mean, these woods we used to go to, they probably weren't even that big thinking back. Mm -hmm. But to us, you know, they were these big woods and they was creepy and there could have been anything in those woods. Right. And no. I, I kids' imaginations work. And also kids don't kind of see the danger and stuff, do you? Because I remember as well as going to the woods, there was like this, there was a building site over the other side of the woods, um, because at that point I think they were starting to develop the land there. And we used to go, we used to go around that when it wasn't at, at weekends when there was no one there and climb around this building site. And and thinking back about it now, it was really dangerous. And we, you know, we could have easily killed ourselves. But I think kids Kids like things that are kind of an adventure, don't they? They kind of skirt the edge of danger. There's something, you know, I think you are sort of kind of drawn to things that are a bit scary or dangerous as a child. Right. I think it just, it's all about curiosity. Mm, uh, definitely. Yeah, you know, because when you as you grow older, you're like, well, I kind of want to be in my safe little bubble, not really want to get out anywhere where I'm going to get lost. But, like, when you're a kid, I mean, it, it doesn't matter. Nowadays, especially, like, in the U.S., you don't, at least I feel like you don't see a, a lot of kids kind of out and about doing what right. I used to do when I was younger, what you used to do when you were younger. Um, but, you know, I kind of hope that my kids will have that sense of adventure. Granted, I don't live in front of a vast amount of woods anymore. We're a little more, a little more in the city now, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things where you just always want to search out and find something. I mean, I can remember when I was still in elementary school, I'd, would walk out into the woods and there was this abandoned car that was yeah. kind of next to like an old campsite. And I always thought that was really neat. And so I'd always kind of like go out there and it was one of those things you see in movies with kids where they, you know, go hang out in the old abandoned yeah. car and read books and what, yeah, you know, bring, bring their card collection or whatever. So. Yeah, I think it's very, very much attracted to that kind of dark, dark stuff, and and yeah, you know, I think you know perhaps you don't lose it that much as an adult. I mean, I, I honestly still, if 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 it's a bed not in our bed at the moment, you, our old bed, you couldn't put stuff underneath. But I, I still have that kind of thing of, of you know if I'm looking under the bed, there's, there's there's a tiny little bit of my mind that still goes, 
could be a monster and could be something under there. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Or, you know, if it goes away, you know, a wardrobe or a cupboard door that isn't shut, I have to shut it. I, yeah. I couldn't go to bed and like leave it open. So <laughs> that, that bit of my mind is, is still has that kind of what if sort oh. of going on all the time. And I think I think a healthy amount of fear is quite good if you're writing dark, creepy stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's, it's the same thing about, you know, uh, say you're you're walking around your home before you go to bed and you need to go turn the light off. There's always that feeling of like when you turn the light off, something's going to yeah. happen. After <laughs> that instant, it's dark. There's just something about darkness, isn't there? It's it, it, it's always it's kind of primal, I guess, that fear of the dark. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so you were saying that uh, you had an English teacher that was telling you kind of that you needed to continue this writing thing. Uh, so are you disappointed that you didn't become prime minister? <laughs> yeah, he wrote that at the bottom of my essays. If you do not become prime minister or a best-selling author, I should be very disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it took me 30 years to get to the author part. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think I don't think Prime Minister is my sort of thing. There's sometimes when you see the mess everyone else makes it, you think, I mean, I don't know, could I do any worse? Right, exactly. <laughs> it's like, well, maybe if I just go in there and I just act like myself and I don't be very political <laughs> about it, everybody just kind of chill, maybe I can do it. But I think I'm too honest. I, I, <laughs> I think that would, that would trip me up at the first bit. Too honest. <clears throat> Goodness gracious. So, do you uh, do you currently write full time? Do you do you have a secondary uh, career that you that you currently have, or has this been able to set you up to where you just write every day and and live your life? Yeah, I'm 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 incredibly unfortunate that yeah I, I can write full time now. Um, you know, I was very very lucky with the Chalk Man that you know it was a book that was published in enormous amount of countries. Um, and, you know, it, it, it did kind of set me up to be able to kind of leave the dog walking business or rather I gave it to a friend who was setting up their dog walking business um, and, and write full time. And uh, yeah, it's a huge privilege because not everybody gets the opportunity to do that, even as a published author. You know, it's, it's not always a, a given that you can write full time. Lots of people have to have another job while they write. And it's a huge privilege to get to do it full time. You know, I, I, I try, even if I'm, you know, struggling a bit with the book or having a day where it's like not so good on the writing front, I always kind of try not to moan or or say it's a stress because I think, you know, I've, I've been in jobs that were a real stress. I've been in jobs that are really hard. There are lots of people who have properly hard jobs, you know, right. and it always just feels a little bit wrong to kind of go, oh, my God, it's so, so difficult sitting here writing, you know, because it's not it's a huge privilege to get to do it full time. Um, and I'm very, very lucky, and hopefully long may it continue. But you know, I think there is there is a certain degree of pressure because obviously you you know you you I want to be able to continue to do this. It's what I always dreamed of doing. You know, I've had a lot of other jobs and um, careers over the year, other years, um, and I'd I'd like to kind of keep doing this one. So you know, I kind of feel that pressure to keep putting out books that people enjoy to read and 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 you know really love. So. There is that pressure, but yeah, I, I'm lucky that I, I am a full time writer these days, which is great. That's awesome. Yeah, and you know, they always they always have that old adage, uh, you know, if you if you love the job you have, you'll never work a day in your life, kind of thing. So I, I I would imagine that that's kind of how you see things, and that's why you don't grumble and complain if you have an off day or you don't get your you know five thousand words in or whatever. And I, I, and I feel like I it mean, gives you. you Days where you feel, you know, before Christmas, I was feeling like oh, I was working on book four and I wasn't where I wanted to be. Um, and you know, I was I was a bit grumpy and stressed about it. But I try and always, you know, I think you have to be realistic and you know, sort of ground yourself with stuff and kind of go, well, you know, come on. At the end of the day, you know, your publisher's going to give you a couple more weeks on the deadline. You know, it's not the end of the world. It's you know, like I said, there are people out there in really tough, hard jobs. Yeah, quit, quit moaning. <laughs> Stop being so precious, you know. You're getting to do what you always wanted to do. Um, you know, I, I don't really sort of go in for that when people are like, oh, it's, it's so hard, this writing. It's like, well, you know, yeah, everyone has difficult days where you're staring at the, at the laptop going, oh, God, this is, this is not coming together. Mm -hmm. But in the grand scheme of things, I think, you know, a bit of perspective sometimes is always good. You, you know, it's, it's easy to get caught up in it and, and, and lose perspective, I think, sometimes. Yeah. And I can imagine as you progress through your releases that the editing process kind of shrinks down a little bit because you kind of get in your process of how the book is written. And, you know, you probably don't have as long of a string of, you know, back and forth edits to get to the final published novel. Is that 
Would that be correct? You'd, you'd, yeah, you'd, you'd hope so. Um, <laughs> I I think there's there's always there's no, to be fair. I think to a degree, yes, you you start to sort of learn the the process a little bit more. You you kind of hone your own craft as you go along because you know you go into it as a complete novice with with no knowledge at all. You know, I had no knowledge at all of the editing process or, or anything. You know, working with editors. Um, but but fortunately, I do enjoy it. I like someone you know who's helping me to improve the book it's a it's again a great privilege to have an editor who can cast their professional eye over it and and kind of you know make that book better um i always say my editor's wonderful because she makes me feel like you know the most fantastic brilliant author in the world while still managing to point out all the bits where i'm really actually just rubbish <laughs> but she still makes me feel good about it um and but i think perhaps that's why sometimes you know the writing process itself gets harder in a way as you go along because firstly you're trying to push yourself because you want each book to be better than the last and you want the readers not to be disappointed and kind of go oh that wasn't you know quite as good or you know that she didn't try that hard on this one so you, you're constantly making each book trying to make each book better and yeah i think you are editing yourself harder each time as you go along mm -hmm. so you know you perhaps take longer on you know the first few drafts before it reaches my publishers because i'm sort of taking on board what they've taught me, if that makes sense, about the editing process. Yeah. But, you know, one thing I have I have learned in publishing is that there are always more edits. <laughs> always more edits. <laughs> All right, CJ. Well, uh, obviously, you've released two books now. Uh, you've got book three coming out uh, in just a matter of a couple of weeks. But just to kind of catch uh, the audience up on your previous books, can you tell me a little bit about The Chalkman? Yes. So, um, the Chalk Man um, was actually was inspired actually by um, a box of coloured chalks that um, a friend bought for my little girl's second birthday. Um, and she wanted to go and draw on the driveway with the chalks and she wanted to draw stick figures. And we ended up covering the driveway with all these stick figures. And later that night, I, I remember I went out and I'd forgotten these stick drawings were out there. I opened the door and I was confronted by all these weird chalk figures on the driveway. And in the dark, they suddenly looked like incredibly creepy. Um, and I remember saying to my husband at the time, these chalk men look really creepy in the dark. And that was kind of the starting point for the book, because um, I just thought the chalk men became the chalk man. There was something kind of creepy in it. And very quickly, the idea of a childhood game that goes very dark and sinister, um, sort of, yeah, it kind of wrote itself. Um, so it's, it's the book's set in, it's set in two time periods. So it's set in 1986 and in 2016. And we first... Um, join Eddie and his group of friends in 1986 um, and they're a typical gang of preteen kids in the 80s um, you know they ride their bikes around they go and build dens in the woods and they come up with this game which is drawing these these chalk figures and chalk symbols on the ground in the small town where they live to pass secret messages between their gang uh, which is you know, the kind of thing that you know kids come up with really and, it, and they like it because it's secret between them but it takes a sinister turn when these stick figures these chalk men start to appear on their own that the kids haven't drawn um and they start to appear at the scenes of various terrible things that have happened in the town culminating in the stick figures leading the gang of friends to the body of a girl who's been murdered in the woods 30 years later um we rejoin eddie um he still lives in the same town he thinks the past is behind him that you know the the perpetrator the murderer has been caught um, and all that is very much in the past. And then he receives a letter which contains just two things, a drawing of a stick figure and a piece of chalk. And very soon he starts to realise the game they started all those years ago as children um, was never really over and someone wants to play again. Oh. Even, uh -huh. even after <laughs> reading it, that still so sounds creepy. That's kind of the chalk, man. <laughs> um, okay. And then uh, obviously that was released in, uh, in 2018. So now yeah. on to 2019, we've got The Hiding Place or yeah. you know, everywhere else around the world, we've got The Taking of Annie Thorne. So wouldn't, would you mind telling me a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, so if the chalk, the chalk Man was very much inspired kind of by my childhood and the things that influenced influenced my childhood as a, as a sort of a preteen in the 80s. So it's very much a homage to things like Stephen King and films like The Goonies and The Lost Boys and all, and all that sort of stuff about kids getting into dark adventures. So that's kind of really where the chalk man sits. The hiding place was inspired um, when I was when I went to school. I went to school at a small mine in a small mining village in Nottinghamshire, um, just after the well, just during and after the miners' strike in the UK, which was quite a, a bleak time for all of the mining communities. Um, out of those villages were left. <coughs> excuse me. 
really kind of um, devastated after the miners' strike. Um, a lot of them became very deprived um, and run down. And of course, all the all the pits were closed. And where I used to live, there were lots more mining villages. And I used to walk my dogs when I was a dog walker over what used to be a former mining site, um, which had kind of been redeveloped and all the sort of the mining stuff taken down and it was being turned into a country park but I always used to walk over it and think there was something quite bleak about it still and I used to think about all the, the tunnels and things that were literally below the ground still because they you know they sealed a lot of them up but they they left a lot of machinery and stuff down there they kind of just closed them and, and that was it and, it and I found something quite fascinating about the idea of these these tunnels these mines that were still under the ground um and again you know your mind starts doing that I thought what if what if for example, a group of kids, because uh, it tends to be kids, found a way into this, you know, this, these old mines that were still there below below the ground. And and what if there was something more than the mines that had got buried down there? What if they found something even older and perhaps more sinister? And so that was kind of the starting point for, for the hiding place. Um, and also, I, I, I sort of, I, I, I quite like creepy kids. <laughs> I think there's, there's nothing more sinister than, than a creepy kid, really. So it, it the, you know, the, basically the book starts with, um, it's set in this small mining village and um, it starts with the police finding basically the body of a mother and her son and the mother has has killed her own son. She's bludgeoned him to death before killing herself, which is you know pretty horrific. Um, but she's left a message above his body, which simply says, not my son. And our protagonist, Joe Thorne, uh, grew up in this small village. Um, you know, he left 25 years ago because something happened to his sister that we, we don't quite know about, but not long after this horrific um, killing, he receives a message which says, I know what happened to your sister, it's happening again. And he finds himself returning to this village where he grew up, where this terrible, terrible event has taken place. And he manages to kind of blag himself a job. He's a teacher, he gets himself a job at his old school. Um, he's quite, a, a, I say, a complicated character, Joe, because although he's coming back here sort of primarily because, you know, there's a mystery to be solved. Something happened to his sister many years ago, and it looks like history may be repeating. He also has gambling debts that he's trying to get away from. He owes some not very pleasant people some money, and getting back to this small village, you know, he thinks he can kind of hide out there for a while while also investigating what's going on in the village. Um, but yeah, he soon finds out that, you know, history is indeed repeating itself, and this small village has some very, very dark secrets um, in the ground, in the old mines beneath the village um so that's kind of yeah the hiding place um it, it's again it's it's a it's a book about secrets in the past uh, about a group of kids whose relationship kind of goes very badly wrong when they sort of find a way into the old abandoned mines and find out what's lurking there um and it's i think probably more creepy and supernatural in a way than than the chalk man um but but has a lot of the sort of the same themes to some degree um and yeah, and it was a lot of fun to write. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would I would say it's a little more supernatural in the way it I is, guess yeah. uh, King's The Outsider was. Um, it is, yeah. The, the Chalkman kind of is is a mystery with with kind of the, a creepy undertone. Um, and with the with the hiding place and taking Manny Thorne, I wanted to go more supernatural and creepy. I mean, it, it's still ambiguous to a degree. You can take from it what you will. I quite like things that can be slightly ambiguous, but there is yeah much more of a, a sort of a supernatural element in it and I think it is creepier than the chalk man but I always say you know I think there's hopefully enough in there to satisfy people who just enjoy the mystery aspect because I think you know it's important when you kind of mix thriller and say horror supernatural that you actually make sure sort of your mysteries are kind of grounded in reality so a lot of the answers you know are in are in real life you know you, you don't kind of use that kind of supernatural opt-out oh the, the ghost did it you, you know it's, <laughs> you, you've got to have that sort of a central bit of reality, I think, and make sure people are satisfied right. um, with your resolutions. You know, you've got to perhaps, I always say it's, you know, it's mostly people, people who are the ones who do the bad stuff, even if you have that kind of creepy aspect. Um, and I think that that's, that's important as well, because you don't want to sort of cheat your reader on delivering the answers, because people read mysteries because they want resolutions. So I think it's important to give them a satisfying resolution. Yeah, to, to kind of give the story plausibility. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think that's that's how you get people to suspend disbelief as, as well when you're when you're adding in that kind of element. Is you know it's important to make your environment and your setting and your characters and sort of the mundane things as realistic as possible. Because if you can ground people in that reality, they're more likely to suspend disbelief when you kind of go off into a slightly darker or creepier tangent. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for those in the audience that uh, that haven't. 
uh, been introduced to CJ yet, uh, definitely start with the chalk man. But if you uh, want to read her second book uh, in the U.S., it's called The Hiding Place. And in the U.K. and beyond, it's called The Taking of Annie Thorne, just so you're not confused. Uh, it, is yes. two, it is two separate covers, two separate titles, but it's the same book. Same book. Um, <clears throat> now, kind of still talking about that. Uh, I do a lot of audiobooks nowadays, uh, just with yeah. how busy life gets uh, in the easy ability to just kind of put headphones in your ears and go. Um, did you have any sort of influence uh, into getting Richard Armitage to do the audiobook for The Hiding Place and then now on for the other people? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, but I'm really pleased. I, I, he was he did a brilliant, a brilliant job of um narrating the hiding place he's I mean, he's such a, a brilliant actor and you know he, he does a lot of audio books and he's absolutely wonderful um so i was thrilled when he did he, you know he was happy to do the other people as well he was a big champion for um the hiding place um and he you know he tweeted about it a lot and was really supportive um i was very involved with the book um you know we're actually we, we have been talking with him he he was interested enough in the book that you know we, we are still talking with him about potentially doing something further as in, you know, developing the book into, you know, maybe even a television series. Oh, wow. So he's been a big, a big champion of the book and my writing. Um, and, and yeah, he was, he was, yeah, really happy, and we were really happy uh, for him to, you know, uh, narrate the taking, uh, taking my thought to narrate, narrate the other people. Um, and from what I've heard, uh, again, he's just, he just does a brilliant job. Yeah, I mean, I've been very, very lucky with the narrators for my audio books. Um, you know, it, it's thrilling. And it, it, yeah, again, it's, it's another, it's, it's a strange thing when, you know, you go into the studio and, and you hear sort of this, this actor, you know, speaking stuff, speaking your words <laughs> <laughs> that you've written. It's, it's, yeah, it's really odd. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. And I, and I still think I'll probably have to get uh, a copy of the audiobook for the other people, even though I've read it just because I love listening to him talk. I mean, I got the audiobook for the He's hiding right. place and it's just phenomenal. And if you guys don't know who I'm talking about when I say Richard Armitage, uh, since this is a mostly a fantasy podcast, uh, Thorne Oakenshield from the Hobbit, uh, that's yep. <laughs> pretty much his best known role. So that kind of gives you a heads up. So that's who, yeah. uh, who's narrated those audiobooks. Uh, but now that we've kind of gotten to the other people, um, obviously it comes out in a couple of weeks. I read it. It was one of my top reads uh, of 2019, even though it publishes in 2020. Uh, and I've already kind of said that it's probably going to be the number one thriller of 2020, even though it's a little early, but I loved it that much. Um, <laughs> well, well, thank you. No yeah, pleasure. <laughs> absolutely. Right. Um, and I actually just saw the other day uh, in an email from Penguin Random House that uh, my, I had a blurb uh, come out with kind of in the praise sheet. Uh, alongside yeah. like Mike, uh, Michael, or uh, sorry, Alex Michaelides, uh, John Mars, Harlan Coben, which I thought was amazing. Um, oh, no. But but I basically blurbed it and said that it, it was for fans of the Silent Patient and the Chain, uh, but also uh, Alex Norse, the Whisper Man. Uh, I thought it was oh, kind of like a perfect mix of those books, and those books are also phenomenal. They all came out in 2019. Yeah. Um, but CJ, if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit about the other people and what we can expect. Yeah, well, the other people, um, I was always kind of like going into things, sometimes talking about the idea that, that started it, because it was when I was asked about this, probably a year ago, when um, The Hiding Place came out, I, I was talking about book three then. And I said, the inspiration sort of behind it was I was I was driving home um, one night. Well, we were driving home from seeing relatives. We were stuck on the motorway. Um, it was dark. We were stuck behind this kind of beaten up old car that we'd been sitting behind for ages in this really slow moving traffic. And I was sat behind this car, just staring at the at sort of the rear window of this car, which had lots of stickers on it, lots of faded, kind of quite just a really eclectic selection of old stickers. And then my mind started to wander and I started to think, what if, <laughs> which is where most books start, right. what if a face appeared in the rear window of that car right now? What if, what if it was someone who was being taken against their will? What if it was someone in distress? in that car sort of in front of me and, and what, what would I do about it? Um, and then my mind started ticking on a bit more and I thought, oh, that's interesting, but what if, what if it was, what would make it more interesting? What if it was someone you knew? You know, this really random occurrence, someone you knew in the back of the car being taken against their will and then sort of my mind tumbled down the darkest rabbit hole and I started thinking, what if it was your child? Your child's face appears in the rear window the car in front of you, a car you've never seen before, your child shouldn't be there, they should be at home in bed, 
and their, their face appears in the rear window of this beaten up old car and calls for help. And then the, you know, the car takes off and you can't catch it. And so that was really the starting point for the book, because that's where the book quite literally starts with a mm-hmm. father driving home from work. And he sees the face of his daughter appear in the rear window of this beaten up old car in front of him. Um, and she mouths one word, daddy. The car takes off. He tries to chase the car. He loses it. Um, he stops. He calls home thinking perhaps he's been mistaken. Perhaps he sort of imagined it. And he calls home and he finds out that something terrible has happened, um, which I won't sort of perhaps go any further there. Um, <laughs> but we rejoin Gabe, um, the father, sort of three years later. Um, and he's basically he's a broken man. He's obsessed. He's, he spends his days and nights driving the motorways, searching for the car that he believes took his daughter, even though everyone else, including the police, believe that both his wife and his daughter are dead. But he refuses to give up hope. Um, Along sort of the way of his journey, there are, there are other characters. Um, there's a character called Fran and her little girl, Alice, and, and they're also driving the motorways, but they're, they're not searching, they're running um, from a group called The Other People. And, and Fran knows what happened to Gabe's daughter, and she knows what will happen if this group ever catch up with her and Alice. Um, and there's also a, a waitress called Katie, who, who Gabe encounters, who sort of he becomes, she's, she works at a service station, she becomes something of a confidant for him. Um, but yes, in the background is this is this shadowy, sinister group called the other people who basically they say they know what loss is like. They know what it's like to lose a loved one um, and they want to help people who've perhaps lost loved ones um, and maybe not received justice. But if you ask for their help, then you will pay in quite a big way. So there are all these elements involved in the story and, uh, and then gradually they sort of all come together. So, you know, we find out what what's happened, really happened to Gabe's daughter, who the other people are, what they're about and what all the various connections are. And there's also another very shadowy figure called the, the Samaritan, um, who we, we never really know is whether he's helping Gabe or what his motives are. So it's got a lot of things going on there, but gradually all these, these separate elements come together. And, and also there's another sort of thread of the story where there's a, a girl who's, well, we don't quite know where she is or what's happened to her. She's described as a pale girl in a white room who could be in some kind of coma. We don't quite know. Um, we don't quite know what her connection to the story is. So I wanted to write a book where, rather than the other two books that were first person, I wanted to write a book that was a third person um, with, with lots of diff- with several different characters um whose stories come together and begin to intertwine and that's kind of what happens in the other people and i think more so than my previous books that were perhaps slightly creepy mysteries the other people is very much a thriller it's very fast paced it it literally kind of takes place in motion really a lot of the time up and down the motorway with people sort of traveling and on the go so it's it's much more of a sort of a thriller perhaps than my previous two books were but you know obviously it is it has also got a slightly other aspect there is a slightly supernatural probably the best way of describing it slightly weird aspect to it as well that gives it hopefully a kind of creepy feel because I think you know I, I I couldn't write just a straight thriller I think I <laughs> there has to be something else going on as well mm. uh, but yeah it was I'm, and I'm really excited about it actually because I'd like to say I think you try and push yourself with each book and I felt that I really did sort of push myself with book three with the other people um, and you know Hopefully it all comes together and works. And my, my husband, who's always very critical, um, said he thought it was his, it was his favourite. He thought it was the best one. So that was uh, that was high praise from him. <laughs> well, I, I definitely have to agree with him. Uh, I've said it's you know time and time again. It's your best one so far. Um, oh, thank and, you. You know, obviously I'm ready for for what comes next. But since this one's not even out, we're going to continue to <laughs> kind of loop around on it. But uh, so tell me a little bit about your writing process, especially with the other people. But do you, I mean, I know you touched on it a little bit, kind of, you, you kind of see something and then you bring an idea around it. But do you typically bring characters to life first or does the plot have to gel before you even begin fleshing those characters out? Uh, how, do, how, does, how do you kind of start your books? Um, I, they normally start with a, a what if. It, it might be something I've seen that my mind starts just turning over. Sometimes it can just be a phrase, you know, that, that I think, yeah, there's something in that. Um, it could be a place, something I've seen, something I've read. Um, just just one little thing, like, as I say, that following that car or the chalk drawings with the chalk man or 
walking over the old mining site. That's that's where ideas tend to come from. Mm -hmm. And then once I've got that idea, what I normally do is I sit down and I write a first chapter. I, I get the first line and then I, I see where it goes. Quite often, if I'm in the middle of even if I'm in the middle of writing another book, if I've got that idea, I like to get the first chapter down. So, for example, I'm still editing book four, but I have started to write the first chapter of book five because I had an idea and I wanted to get it down. Um, and then I like to see where it goes. Um, I'm not really a planner. I don't sit down and write lots of chapter plans or character plans or you know any of that any of that business or even have post-its or anything. Mm -hmm. I just start and I see where it goes. And then my characters kind of start to come to life. I kind of bring them in. Um, and I think it grows organically. I mean, I know some people can't write like that. Some people have to have very detailed plans before they even sit down. For me, if I planned out the whole novel, I would just absolutely be bored to tears by the time it came to sit down and write it. I'd, I'd be, I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Because for me, the fun of writing is not knowing where it's going to go. It's almost, you know, it, I, and I always think perhaps if I'm surprising myself, you know, I come up with interesting tangents as I go along, you know, going, oh, what if this happened? Then then hopefully that that's surprising for the reader. And of course, you know, it, it changes. I mean, the problem with writing that way, um, as I'm finding with book four, which is particularly complex plot wise, is that, you know, you, you can get halfway through a book sometimes and go, oh, you know, I have a really good idea about the way a plot should go or a twist and then think, Oh, God, now, now I'm really going to have to go back and rewrite a load of stuff in the beginning if that's going to happen. And you spend a lot of time editing. I mean, my editing process is, uh, you know, I can get the skeleton of a book done really quickly, but my editing process takes a long time because my editing is really pretty much rewriting, if that makes sense. Wow. It's really going through the whole book and getting it all to make, you know, to hang together. So, but I, I couldn't write a different way. I think you, you are either a plotter or a pamster, as they say. You either like to plot out your books or you just like to start writing and see where you end up. And, and that's that's you know how I enjoy to write. Um, it, it means there's a lot more work in the editing and you know, making sure it all hangs together. Mm -hmm. But for me, that's sort of that's that's the process that works for me. I get that skeleton down there and then I just have all the various bits I can play with. I'm a big believer in that sort of saying you can't edit a blank page. It's like get it all down there, even if you know sometimes if what you're writing what you're writing is terrible. It's absolute rubbish. Just keep writing because there might be some gems you can pluck from it further down the line. And sometimes, you know, you just have to write a chapter that you know isn't very good just to get you to the next the next bit. And, you know, you can always go back and improve on that. So, you, I, I, you know, you have to put it to one side, I think. I, I, if I sort of deliberated on every chapter and every line, every paragraph, I, I would never, ever have written a book. I would, I would still be on the first chapter. <laughs> so... Uh... Obviously, the other people takes into account more uh, points of view than your past two books. Did you find that yes. easier to bring those all together um, than you did with kind of like a two timeline uh, setting? Or did you find it when you got to the editing process, you're like, how in the world am I going to tie all this together in the end? Uh, can, can you tell me a little bit about that process. There, there were points when I was writing the other people that I did <laughs> I did sit there. Normally it's, normally it's about the 200 word mark this happens where I sat and thought, oh, I'm not going to be able to make this work. <laughs> it's just, this isn't going to happen. You know, and you get really a bit stressed about it. It's like, how, how no, people, people are going to expect me to finish this book and I have no idea how I'm going to make it all tie together. Um, even, even though I had a vague idea. Um, yeah, there are points where you go, I, I, God, how, how can I get them? Because quite literally in, in the other people, there is a lot of how do I get this person from here to here? in that time I have to get them from there to there and, and somehow they must you know their worlds must collide um I know far more about the M1 motorway and all the rest stop service stations than, than any sane person should know because <laughs> again I wanted to make it you know realistic in, in terms of the traveling times um of getting from one place to another for it all to work um and uh, and yeah there, there were bits where I was you know tearing what little hair I have out over it but then there's always a tipping point, I think, where you get you, you suddenly things start to slot into place and it kind of all, all sort of goes sort of sort of down downhill, not downhill in hopefully a quality way, but you reach that really tough bit and then it just starts to slide into place. And and usually I've, I've found that with all of the books so far, you just kind of have to kind of break that that back of it and then the various bits start to start to slot into place like a jigsaw puzzle. And I think whatever sort of format you know you take with writing a book, whether it's just a single first person narrative or it's you know it's it's third person different viewpoints 
um, you know, two timelines, uh, they all present challenges in their own way. I mean, you know, I think sometimes writing a first person narrative, just a straight first person narrative can be difficult because because you've got to create a variety in pace, a variety in perspective. So it doesn't become too kind of too kind of one note. So, so that's your challenge with the first person narrative, kind of keeping it interesting and 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 not, you know, as I say, just one note if it's just one person. Um, you know, two timelines is 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 quite fun in one way because you can break from one and create cliffhangers um, in each timeline. But at the same point, your challenge there is to make sure that one timeline isn't more interesting than the other, so people aren't kind of skipping one to read the other. And again, the same with sort of multiple perspectives as well. So I think you know whatever you know, however you choose to construct a book, it has its challenges. Um, in say book three, you know, there's it's third person and there's different perspectives. Um, in book four that I'm writing now, um, you know, I, the, conveniently I started that one writing it all in in um, past tense. And then helpfully to myself, about a third of the way through, well, actually, I finished the first draft, even though it was very skeleton. I went, no, no, I actually, what I think this book needs is to be written in present tense. <laughs> <laughs> so I went back to pretty much the start and started rewriting it all. But, it, you know, it had to be done. It worked for the book. And sometimes you have to make those big decisions. because There's no point plowing on when something isn't working. You know, I think you have a gut instinct sometimes if something isn't working and isn't right for the structure of the book. Um, and so I have, you know, a first person narrative plus third person narrative, both written in present tense, um, which again was interesting because you don't often write third person in present tense, but it works for the book um, because you know, the book is, is, is kind of dependent, I think, on just seeing things in the in the present um, mm -hmm. structure. So as I say, I think, there are, yeah, however you choose to write, there are different challenges depending on how you decide to do it. Okay. Well, fantastic. So we've talked about uh, all the books that you have out and the next one that you've got coming out. But uh, what are you working on now? Um, I'm working on book four at the moment, which as yet is kind of untitled because we sort of had a, a vague title. Um, but I think we're going to sort of change that. So at the moment, book four is untitled. Um, but I'm about, yeah, I'm about halfway through edits on book four. And um, whereas book three, the other people... It was very much a thriller um, and sort of set on motorway and quite fast paced. Book four is much more a, a mystery again, um, quite dark, quite creepy. Um, I, I described, I think, when I was talking to my publishers and my agent about it as kind of a mix between The Wicker Man, The Shining and Sharp Objects. So it's set in a small village um, to which a, a new a new vicar finds themselves coming after um, having been forced to sort of leave the, the city where they were with um, their daughter. Um, and basically there's, you know, there's, this is a village with a very dark history. Um, hundreds of years ago, um, martyrs were burnt at the stake in the village, um, both adults, women, um, and two young girls. Um, and it has this dark history from that. It also... 30 years ago, two young girls disappeared from the village um, and no one knows what happened to them. And so it's a village with lots of secrets, lots of dark goings on. Um, and the protagonist finds himself kind of drawn in to the mystery of well, secrets from hundreds of years ago, but also from sort of more recent history. And they kind of all tie together. Um, and yeah, it's, it's kind of creepy and dark and there's lots and lots of twists and turns. And yeah, it's I, I say it's fun to write. At the moment, I'm tearing my hair out over it. Well, no, actually, I've gone past tearing hair out stage. I'm, I'm at the stage of getting it all together now. But it's yeah, it's it's probably I, I think I've said this about each book so far. I think in terms of plot, it's perhaps the most complex and twisty I've written so far. And it, but it's also you know it's also pretty dark and very creepy again. So I think I'm always going like one one book now is, is more thriller esque, and, and this one definitely is returning to sort of dark. And, and very creepy um not so much supernatural but just as in having a very creepy backdrop um to the whole thing so yeah i'd, I'd love to give you a title about it but i say at the moment we haven't we haven't settled on a, on a title for book four yet mm -hmm. um but it, it's funny because it, it, it's set in a small sussex village and we moved a year and a half ago funnily enough to a small village in sussex uh in the south of england and a lot of a lot of the book is rooted in the, in the history of sort of the area where we are um, particularly, um, as I say, there's this history of um, martyrdom, Sussex martyrs, 
um, which is which sort of features in the book where, you know, it was in well, when Mary the First was reigning, she basically rounded up a lot of Protestants. And if they didn't say they were gonna renounce uh their church and become Catholic, she burnt them at the stake. So <laughs> and, and there's a lot of monuments around where we live. Um to the Sussex martyrs, and I always found that very interesting. Um, so that sort of forms part of the kind of the the dark, creepy history um, in the book. Um, and also from where we live, just up the road, there's this uh, chapel, which that literally when we came to view the house, we drove past it, and I looked at it and I went, "That is really creepy." There's something about that building that begs a book to be written about it. And lo and behold, <laughs> a book <laughs> is being written about it. So, yeah, so that was kind of the, the starting point, really, for the for the ideas for book four. Um, and, and, and I do like I do like sort of small villages, particularly where we are now. There's there's lots of little small villages and they all have their own sort of traditions and history. Um, and, and again, you know, small villages can be very contained. Um, and I, I like that kind of like sort of uh, small, small setting with dark history. Um, and so, yeah, so that's kind of where book, book four is at the moment. And hopefully, uh, yeah, that, that will be finished soon and off to the publishers. And uh, we will have a title. <laughs> I hope soon. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you mentioned you had written or were writing chapter one of book five. So do you typically write one book at a time and that's that's how it's going to be? Or do you sometimes have more ideas and you decide you want to write two at a time? I know some authors will write multiple uh, you know, in a setting, but it sounds like you kind of typically stay to one book, jot an idea down, go back to the the book you were start, you know already currently working on. Is that is that kind of your process? Yeah, I can't I can't concentrate fully. I couldn't concentrate fully on two books at once. However, yeah, I will I will if I've got an idea for the next book. I, I normally I, I always say I'm a bit of a I, I'm not faithful to the book I'm working on because I'm normally getting excited about the idea for the next book when I'm part way through the one I'm working on. But then I quite like that as well because I think that gives you something you know to sort of look forward to if that makes sense. You're like when I've done all the edits on this one, I could I could start the next one. Um, so yes, yeah, so I, I have already sort of jotted down the, the sort of the opening of of book five, and I kind of know where I'm I'm going with that one. Um, and again, you know, each book you like to do something different with. So you know if if in, in some ways book four is perhaps more of a, a creepy sort of gothic dark mystery again. Um, book five for the first time will feature a serial killer. So I've not done serial killers yet, but obviously there are many other aspects to the story. It's, it's not going to be kind of straightforward. Um, but I thought, why not? Let's let's have a serial killer in a book for a change. <laughs> we haven't had one of those. So I think it's nice. To, I think it's a nice thing with writing standalone books, actually. Um, I know, you know, some people like to write series and it's nice, you know, for people, for readers to come back to a, a recurring character they know and grow with. Mm. Um, but from a writing perspective, I like the, the fresh playground that standalone books give you. Each book you can do something completely different with, whole new set of characters to play with, whole new setting, whole new style. You know, you're not you're not limited by anything. You, you can write whatever you want to a degree. So I think that's that's the fun thing about writing standalone books. Okay. And I, I assume just based on the track record of when books release that probably scheduled for like a January, February release in 2021. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so I imagine it'll probably yeah, be about the same time. Okay. Um, when, when book book three, the other people um, is out, I, you know, I've, I've got some bits to share about, about book four, not a title yet, but <laughs> <laughs> I have some other stuff to share. Okay. Well, we'll definitely uh, be on the lookout for that. So uh, apart from your writing, uh, anybody that uh, you would recommend that people take a chance on? Or are there any books you've read lately that you just can't stop talking about? Um, I'm a big fan of The Whisper Man by Alex North. I loved that book. I thought that was absolutely great. Um, I, I We talked about Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, which I think is the seven and a half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle in the US. There's a half death extra in there for some reason. I'm not sure why. <laughs> Um, by Stuart Turton. That's that's brilliant. That's a very, very clever book. Um, I really enjoyed The Silent Patient this year. I thought that was a, a there, are, there are very few books where you get a, what I call a proper twist, mm -hmm. because in most thrillers and mysteries, what you actually get are reveals. They're not necessarily twists, um, but that has a genuine twist, um, I think, you know, partway through that surprised me and I kicked myself that I didn't get it. I was really annoyed with myself that I should have got that, that one. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed that. Um, and I loved um, 
Samantha Downing's book, My Lovely Wife. Um, if you haven't read that, it's it's brilliant. It's it's basically kind of um, husband and wife serial killers. Um, but it's it's a it's really clever. It's very darkly funny as well, um, and really twisty. Just just such a good book. Um, and again, that little bit different. And her second book, I think, is coming out soon this year called He Started It. Um, and again, that's 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 another really really great book. It's sort of about this um, group of four. Um, siblings who are, are going on this this road trip um, after their grandfather dies, basically to fulfil his final wishes to repeat a, a journey they did as, as sort of as children um, with his ashes um, in order to secure their inheritance. But this is the most dysfunctional, psychotic group of siblings you could kind of hope to meet. Um, <laughs> who would really any of them do anything to get their hands on the cash? Um, and again, that's it's another really really good book. I really like books that are slightly different from your traditional psychological thriller or mystery or domestic noir. Um, you know, I think with, within crime, you've got a huge um, potential to do whatever you want with it, really. As long as there's some kind of crime, you can set it wherever you want and, and play with it in lots of different ways. So, yeah, I really like it when when authors do something different with books. And I'm a big fan of dark humour as well. So so those were some books that I, yeah, really, really enjoyed. And he started it. It's definitely one to look out for this year. Okay. Yeah. And, and I absolutely agree with you on the silent patient, <clears throat> excuse me, the whisper man. Uh, I'd also recommend if you kind of like those type of thrillers, uh, the chain by Adrian McKinty um, and the chestnut man by uh, Soren Spystrup. Oh yes. Yes. I've read the chestnut man. Yes. yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Those books are so good. I, I felt like Very 2019 good. was kind of the year <laughs> of the thriller, even though horror was kind of making a comeback, uh, which it still is obviously, but you know, last year, I feel like the summer just was thriller after thriller after thriller, and they were all phenomenal. There's, um, there's some great books with really interesting hooks and premises yeah. as well, um, which, which again, is, is really interesting to see. Books, you know, just taking it in a different direction. So it's not a case of, you know, the the, the husband's got some secrets or the, the sister has secrets or the wife's in a coma. or Because we kind of had a, had a run of those type of books, I think. So it, it, it's interesting, you know, I think – it's exciting, actually. It's, I think it's fantastic, you know, to see that kind of slight horror, horror making more of a comeback. Um, I think it's it's interesting, that, you know, and pure horror, not not even sort of crossover sort of thriller horror, some proper creepy books. Right. Um, and you know, personally, I'm sort of thrilled by that because I know when I started many years ago trying to get published, I was told quite bluntly by one agent that you know what I was writing, that kind of mix of horror thriller, just wasn't publishable. Mm-hmm. And you know, they they sort of basically said we we can get you published if you kind of lose lose all the creepy stuff and just write a straight thriller. Right. Um, and I did, I did try. And then eventually I went, can't do it. <laughs> left. So, Yeah. I felt like I, I've heard that from a couple of different um, horror authors that, you know, it wasn't publishable a couple of years ago yeah. or even beyond that. And then now there's just this resurgence where, mm. you know, everybody's like, Oh, well now I know what I've got to write. Um, and that's kind of yeah. what I've been toying with is writing a horror novel or horror esque novel. Um, for a little while now, because I'm like, that's kind of not the main thing that I enjoy reading. But when I do read it, I go, oh my gosh, I could totally write something like this. I, you yeah. know, I've got an idea that would scare people, or you know, have some kind of amazing twist at the end. It's just uh, putting it down on a page. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, that's, it's that's always I, the problem. Yeah, it's, it, which, is, which is where <laughs> I kind of run into the wall. <laughs> oh my gosh! So. Um, well, CJ, uh, again, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, out of your Saturday to come on, talk about all of your phenomenal books, especially the other people. Um, and it's just been an amazing uh, chat that I've had with you, and, and it's been a, a great time following you, reading your books as they become released, and looking forward to, to what you've got coming out. But to, to everybody else, um, like I said, the Chalkman is already out. It's been out since 2018. The Hiding Place and or The Taking of Many Thorns has been out since 2019. Uh, and The Other People comes out in just a couple of weeks. Like I said, the 28th in the U.S. Uh, and the 23rd everywhere else. Um, you can find CJ on Twitter at CJ Tudor. You can also find her on Facebook uh, at CJ Tudor Official. Um, but otherwise, guys, uh, continue to, to watch out for her because she's got some great things coming out. And like I say, again, the other people may be, if not the top uh, thriller book to come out this year. So definitely be looking out for it. But CJ, again, thank you so much for coming on. Anything else you want to add? 
Oh no, thank you, thank you for having me, and thank you for all the for all the lovely words about the other people as well. And I'm at that stage of being quite scared now. It's only a couple of weeks till it comes out, so it's 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 a little bit nerve wracking right now. <laughs> but yeah, hopefully people other than sort of my nearest and dearest will go and buy it, which would be cool. But no, thank you again for having me. It's been really fun. Absolutely, and uh, you enjoy the rest of your weekend, and uh, and we'll be looking for that uh for that pub day coming out in a couple of weeks, and then beyond. Yay! No, thank you again. It's been brilliant. Ah, uh, thanks. I hope you guys enjoyed episode nine with CJ Tudor. Uh, I know I definitely did. I've, I've loved her books for numerous years and the other people is by far her best release yet. I hope you guys can check it out when it releases here on the 28th for the U S and 23rd for everywhere else. Tune in next week. When I talk to the books of Babel author, Josiah Bancroft, uh, I am super looking forward to that podcast. Uh, he's definitely one of my favorite follows on Twitter, uh, but he's just an amazing human being and a phenomenal writer. Uh, Similar to Sins is probably one of the best fantasy novels I have ever read. And Mark Lawrence would agree with me. Uh, but guys, thank you again for helping this podcast uh, be what it is. I uh, hope you guys continue to enjoy these episodes and look forward to more fantastic authors as time permits. Thank you guys. Mm-hmm.